Father, we thank you for your kindness to us already this morning. And Lord, we thank you now we get to come and, and enjoy what is surely the greatest privilege that we have when we gather as your people, and that is to come around your word and to come around the gospel to set our eyes again on Jesus and to uh, revel in and explore and enjoy all of the treasures that you have given to us in him. So Father, we pray, would you be with us now? Lord, please speak to us through your word, through the, through the goodness of the gospel. And Lord, would you speak to us in a way that changes us, in a way that stirs up fresh love in our hearts for one another, fresh enthusiasm to live out our, not just our individual lives, but our church life in a way that is pleasing to you, in a way that fulfills the plans that you have for us and in a way that brings glory to your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let me start by thanking you so far for um, a number of people have come uh, and shared with me, I'm, I get, I'm sure probably with Pete as well, just yesterday how, they've, how encouraged you are to be thinking about this area of gospel culture, how helped you were by so much of what Pete shared. Uh, now, on top of that, I also had two people who came and said to me they didn't mind the uh, gospel culture slide, which I'll take that. Everyone they didn't mind. <laughs> and they were younger than, uh, than my first critic. <laughs> Anyway, so this morning we were picking up this theme again and particularly want to hone in now on how do we pursue gospel culture? What does it look like for us as a church? In some sense, we're 20 years in, although I know we've all been here for different lengths of time. There is gospel culture amongst us. God has been so faithful and kind to work this into our life together. But how do we keep pursuing it? How do we keep growing in it? How is this something that we sustain uh, week on week and year on year, how do we pursue a culture in our church that is continually shaped in every way by the gospel? Well, in many ways, the answer to that question is far bigger than we could ever hope to answer in a single Sunday morning. Big portions of the New Testament, uh, in many ways, sort of the, the second half of most of the New Testament letters are dedicated to describing this kind of life and culture that God calls us to pursue together in our shared life as a church. Uh, actually, from next Sunday, we're going to be beginning a whole new thematic sermon series that will take us through the autumn. And it, we're going to work through a number of key virtues and character qualities that God's word calls us to pursue in our Christian lives. And those virtues that we're going to look at are very much natural fruits of the gospel doctrine that is creating gospel culture in our lives. We're going to sort of look at many of those fruits week by week together. That sermon series then is, is kind of a much longer answer to this question of how do we pursue gospel culture? But what would the short answer be? If we had to fit it into a single message this morning, in a nutshell, how can we go on growing in gospel culture together? Well, well I think if you had to pin me down, I would say we grow in gospel culture by treasuring and holding on to five vital things. We grow in gospel culture by treasuring and holding on to together five vital things. But because I know even five is a lot for a single Sunday morning, I'm going to attempt to fit them all into one illustration. One illustration that I hope will carry us through this morning's message 
and it's the illustration of a train journey. Now, full disclaimer, um, this is my own illustration, so if there's flaws with it, which there are, you have to blame all the shortcomings on me uh, and not on others. But um, hopefully it helps. And I know some of us are tired as well, so hopefully it grabs our attention. First up then, starting off very simple, this is a train. And uh, trains, of course, are made to go on journeys, whether that's out into the countryside or up into the hills or down to the sea. And similarly, we as God's people are also on a journey together somewhere. Uh, but it's somewhere far more glorious, a destination far, far better than anywhere a train could take us. We're on a journey to glory, to our true home, to a new heaven and a new earth where we will live with God forever. And just as the first thing that you need in order to go on a train journey is a train, the first thing we need to go on our journey is Jesus. There's no train journey without the train. There is no Christian life and there's no gospel culture without Jesus himself. So that's the first thing we need to have and treasure. Jesus. None of us can make this journey without him. There's no alternative transport set aside besides him. There's no way of us getting to our heavenly destination besides throwing our whole weight upon Jesus, stepping on board, finding a seat, accepting the invitation to trust him and be saved in him. Only in him, only through remaining fixed on him, will we be carried through the Christian life and carried through it together all the way to our heavenly home. But notice as well, we're not making this journey to our new heavenly home on our own, but together. I'm sure you've noticed across this weekend, you're not the only person here. There are other people in this room right now. And that's why I use the picture of a train, uh, not a picture, as we should have now, of a um, little one-seater car or a unicycle. In Christ, we're on this journey, whether we like it or not, with a whole lot of other people. And that's why the Bible talks so much about gospel community and gospel culture and how we treat one another. If the Christian life was actually meant to be lived out in solitary confinement on our own, the New Testament would be way shorter. Our Christian lives would be far less uh, Christ-glorifying. Church weekends would be far duller and quieter. But like it or not, that's not, what it is. that's not how it is. We are on this train, we're on this journey, this Christian life together. It is a train full of Christians in Christ moving towards glory together. And what we need first and foremost then is to make sure that we're actually on the train. To make sure we have Jesus. Jesus himself. And that we will not at any point try to disembark and turn away a church without Jesus is simply not a church, and it certainly won't embody gospel culture. We must know and treasure him above all else. That's the first thing we need to have and treasure. Assuming, though, that we do have Christ and we're treasuring him, the second thing we need to make sure we're actually going somewhere, as you would on a train journey, is fuel. Every train journey needs fuel. And the Bible is clear and consistent. The fuel for the Christian life and the life of the church, the fuel for gospel culture, is gospel doctrine. It's gospel truth, taught and studied and believed 
applied, clung to, celebrated and enjoyed over and over and over again. The gospel is the fuel that Christ gives us to keep putting into the furnace, to power the engine of the church and make the church move. Many of us, I'm sure, have sat in uh, one of those nice cafes that's made out of an old converted railway carriage. Anybody done that? Uh, They're all over the place, aren't they? And I I think they're very cool. Um, And it's really nice for an afternoon tea. But when you get off an hour later, you haven't gone anywhere, thankfully, because your car's probably parked just outside. You are right where you began. That kind of train is not going anywhere. There's no movement. There's no steam. There's no fuel being repeatedly put into the engine. But the truths of the gospel are what fuel the church and empower a church to keep moving forward in Christ. Trusting him and growing in him, growing more and more into his likeness. Gospel doctrine creates and fuels growth in gospel culture. So in Ephesians 5 verse 26, Paul tells us that Christ sanctifies his bride, the church, through the washing of his word. He's telling us it's gospel truth that Christ himself uses to continually cleanse us and renew us as his people. And what's wonderful as well is there is an endless supply of this gospel doctrine, this gospel truth. It is an endless power source available to us. The the tender, that's the bit on the train where they store the coal, uh, or at least it is on a steam train, that tender never runs low. It is full of gospel truth and you can take and take and take from it but the tender always remains full the lord himself continually supplies and replenishes it for us but there is still something we must do something we are responsible for and that is to keep shoveling that gospel fuel into the engine of the church of our hearts it's no good a church just saying We've got the gospel. Yeah, sure. We've got the gospel. We've got it in our Bibles and we've got it in our statement of faith. And it's even in our outreach as we tell people how to be saved. Okay, we don't use it ourselves very much, but that that doesn't matter, does it, really? If we don't think about it too much, we've, we've got it, surely. But what good is it to have a tender full of coal on a train, a tender full of gospel truth in a church that we do nothing with? Or which perhaps we just pick up every so often and and admire in some kind of academic way and then we toss it back onto the pile where it came from. Sadly, it's quite possible for a church to know the gospel inside out and even, even apply that gospel quite robotically into their rules of life and conduct and yet never once have that gospel fuel go near their hearts. The fuel has got to go into the firebox, into the furnace, into our hearts. And it's meant to be put there over and over and over again to create genuine Christian life and community amongst us in the church. This gospel truth has got to be shoveled continually into our heads and our hearts where it can be set alight, where it can produce both light and heat, where it can warm our affections And empower our wills to wholeheartedly move forward together in Christ. In fact, not only can we not do without gospel doctrine, gospel truth being continually transferred into the firebox of our hearts, but we also can't substitute it with an alternative fuel either. So many churches down the ages have 
at some point abandoned mining God's truth and exploring the deep riches of the gospel week in and week out together, that they've abandoned that for something else, for other philosophies or topics of teaching and conversation. And, and they do it often with the hope that true Christian community, true gospel culture can still be sustained by some alternative to gospel doctrine. Perhaps they've even imagined that other teachings and other philosophies would do a better job of creating Christ-like culture, a culture of love. But to do that is like abandoning the coal on a steam train and shoveling dust or dirt or thin air into the firebox instead. It will take us nowhere. It will cause us to grind to a halt. You remember what Paul says to the Galatians, Galatians 1 verse 6. He writes to them, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you. So they're deserting Christ himself in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. And in Galatians 3 verse 3, he says, are you so foolish? Having begun by the spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? To swap gospel fuel for any other kind of fuel in our church in order to move forward in the Christian life, it is folly. It is to turn away from the Holy Spirit and his power and it is to try and perfect ourselves in the power of our own flesh. Gospel culture, as we heard yesterday, gospel culture without gospel doctrine is weak and fragile and it will quickly stall and break down and perish, and we will perish with it if we lose the truth of the gospel. So no, our life together must grow out of what we earnestly and wholeheartedly believe in the gospel together. And so as a church, we must go on treasuring Christ and treasuring his gospel of grace, treasuring the doctrines of grace. Whenever we're together, they must be our focus. Christ's person and character, his saving work and all of his saving benefits. All the riches of love and forgiveness, acceptance and welcome that he continually lavishes upon us through his word and by his spirit. If we at any point lay aside gospel doctrine in our church, the life and the culture we share will quickly be starved and shrivel up and perish. The gospel is the fuel for the engine. It's the food on the table given to nourish us and strengthen us by the spirit and form in us the very life of Christ. Only the doctrine of grace can create a culture of grace. So we need Jesus. We need gospel doctrine. Thirdly, we need hope. We need hope. The gospel brings hope. It brings a sure and certain life-changing hope to us, to even the worst of sinners. And that hope is a lot like the solid ground that goes beneath the tracks on a railway. Uh, something that I learned just this week is called the ballast. Does anyone know? Anyone knew that it was called the ballast? Cameron. Do you know, I was going to ask, is anyone into trains? Cameron, you like trains. Um, so I'm now fearful that my facts are not all entirely right, but you know, I'm, I'm trusting Wikipedia. I'll check with you later, Cameron. But yes, yeah, so the, the, the ground, the stones beneath the track are called the ballast. And uh, the ballast is there, you got a picture there? Yep. To provide a smooth surface for the tracks to run on. And because the ballast is made of crushed stones rather than just, a, say, a solid block of concrete, 
vibrations from the train and movement from the heat can be absorbed through the stones rather than damaging the tracks and sort of making them go all skewiffy and causing a rail crash. Well, in a similar fashion, as we pursue gospel culture, we need a strong ballast beneath us that will effectively absorb all of the bumps and the obstacles and the adverse conditions that we'll inevitably meet on our journey through the Christian life together. The, the Christian life is bumpy. And then when Christians come together and try and build gospel culture, that is bumpy, full of ups and downs. We need a foundation beneath us that can absorb all that and, and, and stand up under all of that. What we need beneath us is hope. We need a solid foundation of hope, firm beneath us and stretching out all the way in front of us. And it's in the gospel that we find that lasting and solid hope. A hope that stretches from now all the way into eternity. A hope that will not crumble or be shaken no matter how much we have to put upon it. We have been born again. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 tells us to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And this living hope that we have as Christians, it is a hope that is both for this life and for the next one. It's firstly for this life, because it assures us that even now, every single Christian is utterly safe and secure in Christ. And even now, Christ is with every Christian, with us, you and me, in all of our suffering and brokenness. He is with us. And he is like one of those tireless experts on one of those um, many restoration programs um, that you see on TV. No matter how worn out, soiled and broken a particular object might be, a particular person might be, Jesus is utterly committed and, he, and he's expert in mending broken things and mending broken people. That is his line of business, his passion. He picks up the most damaged people and tenderly, gently, lovingly restores them. Gospel culture does not deny that the church is full of messy and broken people. Quite the opposite. This is one of the many beautiful things about it. Gospel culture embraces and welcomes the fact the church is full of broken people. And it also gives us hope for rescue and restoration. To put it another way, a church that embodies gospel culture gladly recognises that Jesus did not come for the healthy but for the sick. That he came not to call the righteous, but sinners. To recognise that the church is not a boot camp for the strong, it is a field hospital for the spiritually sick. And so we as a church want to welcome and hold out the hope of the gospel to one and all. The gospel brings welcome and forgiveness and acceptance to us just as we are. But it also doesn't just leave us there. It also gives us hope in the here and now that Christ himself is with us, not only to comfort us, but also to begin to change us. That in him we have been born again, and that even now he's begun a good work in us, one that he will continue and he will complete, one that he is helping us in daily and hourly to put off the old self and put on the new, however many times we stumble backwards into our old ways and need picking back up again. And, and if you're anything like me, that is, I lose count every single day. But that is what he does so graciously. 
And so to go on growing in gospel culture, we need as a church to hold on tightly to this present hope that has been given to us. This hope of Christ in us and with us, that he is with us by his spirit to welcome us and to work within us. To give us his strength where we have none. To give us his comfort while we walk through all manner of trials. To give us his mercy and forgiveness when we return to him again and again and again to confess our sins. We need to see ourselves and see the strangers who walk in the door through the lenses of this life-changing present hope. That Christ is even now in the business of rescuing, raising and restoring sinners to a whole new life in him. And yet, of course, it's not only present hope that we need to grasp and hold on to. Remember those words of Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19? He says, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. So this hope that we embrace, it's got to cover our eternal future as well, or it's, or it's, no, it's no use, it's no good. It's got to include the hope that one day all creation will be made new. The sure and certain hope that one day we ourselves, one day we will be perfected, beautified and made a most glorious people. We will one day, amazing to think I know as we look around the room, as we look at ourselves, how shabby we all look, especially after two nights of poor sleep. But these folks around you and you too will one day be presented to our heavenly bridegroom in perfect spotless splendour. To be with him forever. We are going somewhere. We have a future. And although our progress might look glacially slow at times, right now, one day, in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. We will be like him when we see him as he is. And that sort of future hope ought to transform our perspective on our life together in the here and now. It ought to produce in us more and more gospel culture. And I want to share this from Ray Ortland. I, I just love what he, the way that he puts this here. He says this kind of hope, it creates churches of bright, resilient, rugged hope. It creates churches that face life as it is and are not defeated. There is nothing petty and small about a church when it believes this massive and noble gospel. And there is nothing this world can dish out to our churches that our saviour won't bend upward and use to lift us closer to our eternal home. Paul, who knew of this world's hardships as much as anyone, observed, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison. He goes on, in the face of everything that would seem to rob us of God, this assurance builds into us a cheerful defiance. It does so in two ways. First, the hope of the gospel makes us cheerfully defiant toward every disappointment that we endure in this broken world. Second, the hope of the gospel and the triumph of our Saviour makes us cheerfully defiant even toward our own sins and failures. Martin Luther teaches us when the devil throws our sins up to us and declares that we deserve death and hell, we ought to speak thus. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? 
Does this mean that I shall be sentenced to eternal damnation? By no means, for I know one who suffered and made satisfaction in my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Where he is, there I shall be also. There we shall be also. And so to keep on growing in gospel culture, we need to be a church who holds on tightly and passionately, even cheerfully, to this bright, resilient, rugged gospel hope. This hope is the ground beneath the tracks that's got to pave the way before us, all the way to our heavenly home. But of course, next, like every train, we also need rails to ride on. We need two rails, in fact. I know that much about railways. We need two rails. One rail is just not enough, as you'll know if you've ever seen a Superman movie, which we think we've got a picture of. There we go. Every Superman movie's got a moment where there's a train track and there's a bit of there's one of the rails is missing. Superman knows this is not good. And so he steps in and does what he can. We've got some better rails, even than Superman lying there. To stay safe and avoid disaster, every train journey requires twin rails. And in the Christian life, we need twin rails of honesty and holiness. Honesty on the one side and holiness on the other. So that's the the fourth thing we need. It's It's a pair. Honesty and holiness. To grow in gospel culture, we must pursue both honesty and holiness. First of all, we need an ever-growing honesty that that admits not only that we were once sinners in need of a saviour, but also admits just as readily, having found Jesus, we are still sinners who in every way still very much need the saviour that we now have. The gospel that saves sinners is meant to create a culture in the church where it's easy for us to admit that we're still sinners, to admit that we still struggle big time, to admit that we still fall into a whole host of temptations day by day. The gospel is meant to create this culture in in the church where confession is not met with condemnation or judgment, but where confession is simply met with prayer and gospel and grace. Here in the church, like nowhere else on earth, we should feel able, however long we've already been a Christian, we should feel able to be honest and open about our ongoing sins and failings. We shouldn't need to hide them from each other. Not because we're giving giving up and surrendering, but precisely because we're not surrendering, because we're confessing and repenting in an atmosphere of grace over and over and over again. As Luther again once said, the entire Christian life is meant to be one of continual repentance which rather presupposes the fact that all of us here and now will continually be battling with sin from which we need to repent of. And for that, we continually need the gospel. We we continually need the gospel that invites us in our shared life together to be honest about our struggles and our sins, to not pretend we're doing better than we are. The goal, Ray Ortland writes, the goal is not to make the church safe for sin, It's to make it safe for confession and repentance. A place where even extreme sinners find themselves wonderfully forgiven and freed. The goal, in fact, is honesty with a purpose. Honesty for the sake of increasing holiness, which is the second rail, the parallel rail on the track. Christ gave himself up for the church. He gave himself up for us 
with a most glorious purpose in mind, one that we sometimes, I think, I forget. I'm sure we all forget, we underestimate that we would not only be forgiven, but also sanctified. That we would be made not only clean, but also set apart as holy for him. And our holiness, though far, far, far from perfect in this life, is yet still meant to be both visible and beautiful. Ray Altman, one more time, he says, A new culture of holiness to the Lord flows from deep within, from hearts that are refreshed in the love of Christ and given over to him alone. We might look at our unholiness and think, I'm no good at this. I will only fail and fail and fail. Therefore, holiness doesn't matter. But the gospel teaches us to think, I'm no good at this. Good at this. I do fail and fail and fail. Therefore, the promise of Christ is what matters. He will make me holy as he is holy for his own glory. I will believe the gospel. I will put my trust in the mighty love of Christ. And however muddied and sin-spattered our holiness might still appear for now, there is still nothing else as Christ-like on the face of the earth as the church. Nothing looks as close to Jesus and more like Jesus on the face of the earth than the church does. We have a glorious purpose given to us to live out together, to pursue this life together, to pursue a culture in our church that points people to Jesus. But our life together will only truly do that when it's simultaneously displaying both of these things of honesty and holiness. The two must go hand in hand. A church, like a train, has to ride both those rails together. If we try and ride one without the other, we will end up with a train wreck in our church life. Either we'll create this culture of harsh, destructive legalism because we're trying to balance on this single rail of holiness, or we'll create a culture of anything-goes, destructive license. Trying to ride either rail on its own not only dishonors Christ, but it, it destroys people. And it keeps other people from coming to find Jesus for themselves. Neither on its own looks anything like gospel culture. But if we ride these parallel tracks of honesty and holiness together, with hope in Christ as the solid ground beneath them both, well then we will have something powerful and authentic. Then we have a church as God intends it, a, a beacon of gospel light. Shining forth in a broken and dying world, a church that not only preaches Christ, but also powerfully displays Christ in its life and culture together, revealing both his holiness and his mercy and kindness towards sinners. And yet with all of that, four things out of five so far, there is still one more thing we need to pursue in order to keep growing in gospel culture together. One more thing that will show the world that we are truly Jesus' disciples, and that is love. It's the fifth thing we must treasure and pursue together as a church. John 13, 35, Pete referred to it yesterday. By this all people, Jesus says, will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. In Colossians 2, verse 12 Paul writes, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness and patience, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. 
And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. It is love that is meant to shape and govern and bind together all of these other things we've been talking about. Love that's meant to ultimately characterise the relationships, the culture, the community that we share with each other as we journey together towards heaven. We could have, I, th- I think we could have all of the other elements that we've spoken about already this morning and as a result even look somewhat impressive as a church, even look like we're moving along the tracks. But do we love each other? Are we clothing ourselves in love towards one another? If we don't have love, everything else that we do have is little more than a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. We won't have true gospel culture in our church if it isn't all characterised by and infused by love from end to end. To put it another way, there's nothing Christ-like or gospel revealing about the journey if it looks like murder on the Orient Express. And uh, I think we've got a little picture there. There we go. They look happy to be together, don't they? (laughs) A beautiful train heading to a a glorious destination, but everyone on the train suspicious of each other, looking down on each other, critiquing each other, and ultimately, in this case, trying to murder each other. No one wants to get on a train like that. No one's going to come peer in the window and say, oh, what a glorious saviour and what a glorious gospel you've got. In the eyes of a sceptical, unbelieving world, there is nothing at all enticing or different about loveless Christians meeting together and doing life together. But a church that pursues genuine, deep and authentic Christ-like love in all of our relationships, that's compelling. There is no other love in in all the world like that love. No love like the love of Christ being truly lived out in the life of his church. And so we must continually pursue Christ-like love. There should be in all of our relations with each other, all of our interactions, the more formal ones and the, the more casual ones, something of the aroma of Christ about us. Something of his generosity, his kindness, his patience, his understanding and his humility as someone once said we need to love each other in ways so striking that we actually begin to look like Jesus that is how we will look like Jesus but to love like that of course we need first of all and repeatedly to be assured of Christ's love for us which brings us full circle we've been traveling on a track that's gone in a bit of a circle this morning back to the start we need gospel doctrine we can't love others like Christ does if we lose sight of what it means for we ourselves to be loved by Christ. 1 John 4 verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So we need to get that first part. We need to know and remember and be reminded of and remind each other, God has so loved us. Only then will we be able to love one another like God loves us. To be people who love, we need to swim daily in the truth and assurance of his love. Put it all together, there is no better, more satisfying, more noble 
and rewarding way to live our lives than this. No greater goal that we could share in our church than this, to live a life together and pursue a culture together that is powerfully shaped by the gospel and that is powerfully driven by wanting to glorify our saviour, Jesus Christ. The Lord has given us a most noble and glorious calling. He gives it to every single church. And yet even in this, as we consider how we ought to live, our hope remains firmly not in ourselves, but in Christ. Not, it's not in what we can achieve, but in what he has already achieved and what he has promised still to do in us. He's promised to one day bring to completion the work that he has begun in us. It is all he's doing. It's all according to his grace. And hopefully, after a weekend away like this, Thinking more deeply about gospel culture, hopefully it has become even more marvellous in our eyes that Jesus would do this for us and in us and through us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the ultimate gift of grace, Jesus, our Redeemer. Lord, in him you have given us everything. You have given us life and salvation and hope and you have poured out your love upon us through him you have you have reached down into death itself and lifted us and raised us and given us new life in him lord we thank you for your kindness to us thank you lord that you have called us from the grave to new life to be not lone christians but a part of your family you have called us together, Lord, to be your people with you as our God. Lord, we thank you for this most glorious privilege. Lord, please forgive us for how often we lose sight of this, for how easy it is to let gripes and grumbles and flaws in our church to take center stage in our eyes and lose sight of all the things you're doing already to work within us, to lose sight of where you are leading us, to lose sight of the Saviour and the Spirit that dwells within us. Lord, we pray that you'd help us once again to hope in you, to hope in what you have done through Jesus and what you have promised to do. And Lord, please help us to treasure these things that we've been thinking about this morning. Uh, Lord, help us to go on treasuring them all the days of our lives. May our church treasure them all the days of its life for the next 20 years and many, many more. And Lord, we pray that you would receive the glory, that many more people would look in from the outside and see your holiness and your mercy, yes. that they would, they would be drawn, perhaps first of all, seeing the culture that the gospel creates. May they be drawn by that culture and then come asking we pray with eagerness, where's this culture come from? Where's this love? What, what, what is this love that we see that we don't find anywhere else? Lord, we pray that the culture in our church would lead many to come ask, what is the truth behind it? And may it lead many to come and for the very first time put their faith in Jesus to be saved. Lord, we commit these things to you. Again, Lord, we want to say we love you. We are so thankful to you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.